This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. I'd like to present um, Mike Lang and Van Dyke Parks. So I I was told I went to graduate school for moderators because this is my second um, opportunity to do this. And they told me I'm supposed to introduce the guests. So I'd like to say a few words about Van Dyke Parks because for me it's a personal experience of having known this man and having... um, played his music, having been exposed to so many different things that he's done creatively over the years. He's really kind of a renaissance guy. And uh, I think he's probably discovered himself through his life, just as we've discovered him, you know, one chapter later, let's say. Um, He's made a unique imprint in popular music. He's made a unique imprint in film music. He's an author. I know he's written three books for children. I haven't read them yet because I'm not old enough, but I'm looking forward to them. Anyway, I just want to introduce my friend and somebody I admire so much, Van Dyke Parks. Thank you. And, and I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity to, to present Mike Lang, who was the go-to guy for um, the inarticulate composers that dominate the field of the film industry, as Mike has bridged any gap between what is extemporaneous and what has been premeditated in such a great way. And I have benefited from his attitude, which I think is the primary quality in a participant musician. Uh, Because attitude, to me, takes the ability to empower someone else and Mike brings such empathy into so many oh, th- cri- uh, critical environments, and I've seen that, and so I'm delighted to be with him. It's all right. Thank you. Uh, I can't have dinner with you tonight, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I just, we haven't really talked about how we would do this in some ways, but I, I thought, unless you don't want to do this, we might just let you talk about. Um, how you discovered music as a young person, yeah. and just kind of some of the major chapters that got you yeah. into adulthood, where you okay. went and what you did. Yeah. Well, I came from a family. I was the youngest of four boys. I was born in 1943. We had two uh, Steinway pianos, the grand pianos, nested in our living room. My parents had played them ably and did so during my life as I watched them progress from jitterbug and foxtrot to other dance mediums. They were tremendous on the floor, but my dad was a clarinetist. I inherited his clarinet, and age seven, I started playing it, the Albert system, if you know that fingering, which was so clumsy. So hard, it's like driving an old Buick without power steering. But that was my first devotion, and I wanted to be a clarinetist as, uh, for a living. Uh, we preferred uh, Artie Shaw, of course, but Benny Goodman was, was plan B. We listened to all kinds of music. More Fats Waller than uh, Domino, but we listened to all <laughs> kinds of music in my family. 
By 1948, I first heard Cocktails for Two. It had been issued, as I understand it, two years prior, but it wasn't until I was five that I heard Cocktails for Two with its emphasis on tuneful percussion, uh, which became, to me, uh, like an ear candy and distinguished what Spike Jones was doing with all his mallet men in force and so forth as distinguishing recorded music as something entirely different from live music. Live music, I had it all around me. I would go to Chautauqua every year, a place that my great-grandfather helped found with by coercing Andrew Carnegie to endow it so beautifully. It's where the New York Philharmonic would summer, and I would go up there and listen to all kinds of dead white guys' music. <laughs> so we had an ecumenical approach to music. By the time I went to the Columbus Boy Choir, strangely, outside of Princeton, New Jersey in 1952. I went and boarded in a school and had an immersion in, in music that is incomparable, unimaginable to someone who just didn't have the good luck that I had. I went on a stage with, on, I was on Carnegie Hall with, with Arturo Toscanini when you couldn't buy your way into Carnegie Hall as you can now. It took ability, it took an audition with Maestro Toscanini. After the show, he took me out of the stage only because I was the shortest member of the, of the entourage, which included Robert Shaw Corral in Boito's Mephistopheles prologue, available on Red Seal catalog reissue. <laughs> and, of course, at that time, I realized that Boito was a superior musician to Verdi. I knew that as a boy. I sang Piero Lunaire, Sprechstimme, of Schoenberg by the time I was 12. Kodai was no mount that I couldn't uh, reach. Uh, 1952, I got my social security, my social security card in, um, uh, uh, in a production with Vittorio de Angelis and directed by Thomas Beecham in La Boheme. I was a street urchin. I called home. I said, Mom, I'm a supernumerary. Well, I wasn't. I didn't have a spirit at Chuck. But I had a great education, and by the time I came in, I went, went to Carnegie Tech, now called Carnegie Mellon, naming rights. I studied with Philip Catalanet, who happened to have orchestrated for Vaughn Williams, I found out recently. I'd like to apologize to him now, and every, <laughs> every other teacher I ever had. So it was wonderful I came out here in 62 for a hiatus. And from college. I wanted a notch here to try to figure out how I would make a living other than teaching piano at a junior college in Pennsylvania, which is what a BFA would have done for me. So I came out here to explore what was left of, in, the, uh, in the collapse of the beat era. And in the collapse of the beat era, I got to attend all kinds of music. My brother and I stood together in places from all up and down the coast of California and we'd have a bass player. He was our butt draw, we called him. And we would sing uh, what I think is fair to say is world beat music. I learned how to play requinto. It was a discipline. I took it on completely. Nylon string was where we were going. How wrong I was. For 1963, here came Bob Dylan and everything was steel strings. Well, that hurt my hands. I didn't understand it. Everybody went in the like lemmings over the cliff and wanted to play the steel string guitar. And uh, I didn't join them. 
1963, I got my first job offer. It was a good thing. My brother had just died. He was in a Cold War in the hottest part of it, right after the Cuban Missile uh, incident. My brother, the youngest person in the history of the State Department of Foreign Service, because he spoke fluent Russian, served subpoenas on Khrushchev and Mikoyan to get them out of here. They left, they were not happy. But my brother did that at age 23, and in 1963 he died inexplicably in the Cold War. My brother and I needed black suits and a two-way ticket to the gravesite where we would put our brother. Out of compassion, Terry Gilkison, a songwriter who had written Cry of the Wild Goose, Mary Ann was, he was, attributed to him, was, was attributed to him, but many wonderful tunes. Terry Gilkison, who'd had Carson and me as nominal musicians in a studio situation with Dmitry Tiomkin. We were guitarists and we got to come into the folk music with orchestra sessions. He gave us, he gave me an opportunity that was my first arranging job. It was called The Bare Necessities with Phil Harris singing it. I got that job out of compassion. It was hardly an arrangement. It was a glorified rhythm track. I stood at Disney Studios and the man's behind the control room. I was frightened to death. And the man said, are you in the mood? <laughs> I was not in any mood at all. And so that's how my life in music started. And that's how I escaped my training to come out to California and really learn something. Sadly, unprepared response. I mean, I'm really <laughs> amazing, amazing. I don't just can't even take it all in. I have to ask you, as a personal side, what was the private school in New Jersey you went to? That was called the Columbus Boy Choir. It's now the American Boy Choir, and we got all the jobs. We got Sir Thomas Beecham, as I've mentioned. I got to New York City Opera in 1954. I was a mall at the New York City Opera. And Philadelphia, too, a couple of places. Uh, Minotti came down to meet me. You know, it was real good. It was wonderful, wonderful life before my voice changed. <laughs> and other, you know, Bruno Walter, Eugene Normandy, Leopold St Stokowski. We were the go-to boys. We were, we were uh, well-prepared, and we, we could deliver uh, beyond the aspirations of St. Thomas of Vienna. We were the boy choir. Robert Shaw knew that, and it's a matter of record now. So, that's amazing. Um, I went to the school, and I asked actually personally because I went to the Lawrenceville School, which was right near Princeton, and I was probably a year ahead of you. Well, that's, we were close. <laughs> that's where the success stories got to go. Yeah. I wasn't invited to Lawrenceville. Well, I was put upon them. You know, they. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so coming to California and having all that going, would it be fair that we morph into your first album now, or do we have other things to talk about? Hey, if we go to cut two, I, what I'd like to do is, is show you what I was learning when, at, in the, away from the introduction I had as a keyboard player, mindful, everybody at the time, all my peers thought that keyboard, a key playing keyboard would indicate you were, maybe you were gay. So, you know, that wasn't, you know, manly enough. But so I was glad to me. be a student. <laughs> Such a piece. Yeah, let's play that. This is what I did on a synthesizer. You'll know all I had to start with, no keyboard. You play the piece. That's okay. Before you start, could we just, what is this? 
This project. is a piece I did for the Ice Capades, a national, to show I was commercial, I did a national ad on a synthesizer, uh, starting with okay. pink noise. thinking but they bought it and I got to be employed and it was uh, a, such a hazardous employment uh, 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 career such so hazardous then I finally got because I was involved with an overly discussed project with Brian Wilson called smile in which there were two minds in search of a single thought <laughs> and nothing to suggest genius let's be real but great ambition and dedication and, and good intentions. So I got out a smile and Lenny Warrenker noticed that and Lenny Warrenker had a new job at Warner Brothers. He was an A&R man and he had no idea what to do except to maybe get me to confess that I could divulge what Brian Wilson had taught as good studio procedure. And I brought it to a single effort. I got to do a single effort. I did it under the pseudonym. I was trying to protect my family. I did it under the pseudonym of George Washington Brown. And I thought that sounded very like a Peruvian uh, jazz great who'd come up to do just one. And it ended up, Warner Brothers was perplexed by it. Why had I eviscerated a beautiful do re mi song of Donovan Leach? Well, one reason, I, he was the underdog. He was the Bob Dylan wannabe. Nobody would take him in. I was compassionate about that. I thought, I'm going to do, I didn't call it colors, I called it Donovan's Colors. It became a single. It ended up on a jukebox in, uh, uh, in Greenwich Village and became the ignition point for my being signed at Warner Brothers, can you believe this, as an artist. This is called Donovan's Colors. Money goes money. Seven and a half IPS. Sped up to 15. 
I couldn't afford a Miranda player. <laughs> I could afford Jane Migliori on clarinet. And the funny thing about it is at the beginning, I went out to see Lenny Marvin was the man's name. He had a whole bunch of electromechanical devices. And I went out there with a Ur tape recorder, and I taped the nickel going into the slot. And of course, at the end, the nickel comes back out, so you get your money back. So that was the beginning of, of a career in which I, I, miss, I put that on a record called Song Cycle. After I played this record called Song Cycle for the president of Warner Brothers, his name was Joe Smith. Joe Smith looked at me and he said, Song Cycle? And I said, yes, Song Cycle. He said, so where are the songs? So it was a, a promotion man's bet noir. So I went on to serve Warner Brothers in other ways. I thought, well, I better put what I have, what mistakes I've learned from my own record production to good use for other people. And I stepped forward, I stepped up to the plate, and I started arranging for strings, and I decided that maybe it was not wise to put so much emphasis on the trap set, as much as we love New Orleans and all that suggests, but why put so much emphasis on the rhythmic duties in percussion? Why not leave that assignation of rhythm to the strings where it belongs? And uh, so I got this job to do an arrangement for Rye Cooter's first record. It's called One Meatball Number Four on your hit parade. Is that the old tune? One Meatball, the old tune. We're ready for that. <laughs> to try to divide strings um, uh, to, I'd heard uh, Hindemith and other composers, and of course, oh, all the great work of uh, uh, the Age of Enlightenment, where strings participated. And so I thought one line needn't be it, and I got very interested in rhythm and strings. I met more artists at Warner Brothers that went on gladly through all of this, ending up with Little Feet, a group this is where my arranging took me, my, my lessons in arranging, nothing I got in school. This is Spanish Moon, track five, Lowell George. Hmm. What are you doing? 
called the Spanish Moon. So, I was amazed to be participant in what is just a one chord song, and I, I learned a lot from that. As I learn every time, I'm never prepared for an arrangement. It's always beyond me. I'm not talented. I am devoted. I work, I sweat bullets in everything I do, taking about, usually about uh, five days between washing the dishes or taking out the garbage or cooking a meal. My wife thinks the cook is a noun, as we've learned. <laughs> I went, Lowell died on the road. Lowell George, the man we just heard. He was a very good friend. I championed him. I went on, however, later, this is about four years ago, to work for his daughter. This time, not building an arrangement with a, with a prelay, but starting from the ground up. I had five weeks to do 12 songs and uh, spend, I think, $37,000 on Lowell's daughter, this beautiful girl, Inara George. We did a record called Arrangements. I'm so happy that it turned out like this because I found what I thought was my metier, where I deserved to be, a kind of a chamber sensibility which would bridge the gap between legit that is premeditated, literate, and illegitimate, that is extemporaneous processes and bringing them together, as I have observed through so many great instructors like Perry Botkin here, whom I, and Ian, whom I had uh, witnessed in their lettuce years. I went to, um, uh, this, this is the daughter of that man you just heard, that man with whom I shared such an affection for Howlin' Wolf. This is Inara George in Accidental, and, and, the, and, the, and the section is this. What, what I've learned is my ideal medium is what I do. I'm at 70 years old, and what I like to do is get money to do this. Divide the violins into three lines. Violas get two lines. Cello, one. Bass, one. Those are the strings, seven articles of thought. Then five woodwinds will do it. Two flutes, a double reed, a clary, and a bass clary. They can enunciate and draw, draw emphasis on to some of the string ideas. And then a French horn for coherence and its compass, which is, I think, the first call of the brass in such a small. Uh, when I'm lucky, two tuneful percussionists, two, two mallet men will help me and a harp if we get the money for the cartage. This is called, this is called Accidental by Anara George. I'll play some of it. Wanna find the bottom of my heart Wanna be alone until I'm lonely Wanna lie down All of this album was wanna recorded in nine still, hours. Wanna fly my will Wanna be a kite And fly above your house And then drop down into your Wanna crouch down, wanna dig in Maybe speak another language Wanna drink in bars and sell my car I wanna pray for you in my own way And try to keep in mind Every single person in the room Wanna be right, wanna be right I want 
next and on the list I wanna call you back I wanna grow my hair but it'll never get there I wanna have regrets because I want to do absolutely all I can Stand up now, open the door, and find a destination, a revelation. I'll Let's go to her next number. You get the idea. This girl is absolutely collective. Let's do the next number. Pitch perfect. Dig, dig, listen to this girl. How fortunate I was to get All this job. All the words sound so accidental, rise and fall like an old balloon. Oh. My words and my marble heavy mind wasting time. All wasted on instructions for you to carry me around. You pay me attentions, then wave me off with a goodbye. When you speak to me, I speak too pleasantly. Where's the knife? Where's the fire? Set four against three. Run away like I'm some holiday. Where's the knife? Where's the fire? Am I a saint or a liar? Where's the knife? Where's the fire? I heard the where's first the four knife? against three. To give it a little detergent quality. It's also I won't question your opinions, normal. I can't even disagree. You touch on all my troubles, expecting nothing more from me. I am eager for your answers, just like some baby bird. My mouth is so wide open For what you think you might have heard Where are we going with this? Just a second When you speak to me, I speak too pleasantly Where's the knife? Where's the fire? Run away like I'm some holiday So, lucky me, right? Wasn't this fun? Yeah. Just to be clear, is this your song? No, this, Inara wrote the song, and she sent it to me. She did on a garage band, I think it's called. It's voice guitar. She threw that at me. Then I did a reverse image, a mirror image. I tried to get the, the whatever she was doing on the guitar. And then she left the guitar off. So what you hear is just a <laughs> negative impression of her um, eurythmics, I think is the word for it. So what year is this record? Uh, well, let's see. What year are we now, dear? <laughs> 13. Backing up. Oh, probably about nine. 
nine years ago. Ten. No, not uh, 2009. 2009. Yeah. So, and is she still actively doing Oh, she's that? very active. Her husband is uh, Jake Kazan, a major uh, film. And we did a concert the other night uh, at the LA Library to raise funds to uh, preserve SoCal specific sheet music, piano vocal sheet music from the 1880s on forward, and she and I were on that team trying to raise money. And we did raise money. And in the front row center, Joe Smith was there, the man who'd been president of Warner Brothers who said, where are the songs? He was there. And I sang Vine Street, which Randy Newman wrote for me for my first record. It was, I was just so damn touched, I can't tell you, that uh, I'm still kind of uh, shocked by it all. Can we take advantage of the fact that you're a live performing artist and That's entice you? That's questionable. <laughs> All right, I'm going to play a song. I'm going to play a song I wrote as a peon to, to, to California. It's called Orange Crate Art. I started it out. I, I love pianist composers, of course. You know, I look at people like Sasson and all of those people with the real chops. But... There are people who just write for the hand, make it easy, and I've always loved Schumann, and I think this shows about my, my staid, rather uninventive kind of, pardon my back, please. This is Orange Crate Art. a place to start Orange Crate Art was a world apart Home for two in view of Sonoma back when Ramona had heart Memories of her Orange Crate Art Orange Crate table and a rocking chair Barnyard gate waiting some repair. Trust in fate and sweet inspiration. You could go bust to replace just what is here by the case. Hear the lonesome low commotion roar. Hobo hop on if you dare. And it rolls where grapes of wrath are stored, stops on a brasero's prayer. From the vine of a vintage crew comes the wine of this rendezvous. Room for two in view of Sonoma, where there's aroma and heart. Memories of her orange crate art.
Breathtaking. So I love the song form. Uh, you know, I, I like to think of the song form as the most, uh, the sharpest tool in our political kit, the thing that really can change hearts and minds. And I think that the, of the song form as epic, and I, I'm working on it to this, to this deadline. <laughs> I mean, I'm facing a deadline in that medium. I have no business doing it. I can't point to any. I'm not plagued by victory, as so many of my friends are. You know, how am I going to repeat that, or how can I equal? I only have a windshield, and uh, it serves me well, I'd like to think. I decided this year I'd waited many years, many years, to get a call back from all of those people who forget that the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> a lot of people aren't aware of that. My pals, Mo Austin, Joe Smith, and sinking grandly into the, their reputations with their golden parachutes, with little regard for the creative urgings that surrounded them. I'm not a man of property. Just want, I'm not whining at you. I'm sympathizing with you if you share my fate. Uh, I couldn't get I couldn't get laid in a women's penitentiary with a fistful of pardons. <laughs> I couldn't get a record contract. I used to be a brunette, honest. I used to be relevant, but that's gone. But still, I was, I was defiant about it. I would keep writing songs. I would be affected by 9-11. I would write a song about it. I would write a song about an oil tanker that exploded off the coast of Europe, tarring the faces of France, Portugal, and Spain. I would write about things that matter to me. I would do everything I could to be part of the present tense. No phone call. Nothing. A pariah in America. I happened to be coasting through Europe. I, did, I played in front of 17,500 people. My back was to them. I'd arranged 45 minutes retro Latino romantica. Um, all the great songs with the, the Guatemalan singers and so forth, gracing big orchestra, no problem. A lot of money in Europe for the arts. Uh, I'll never forget turning around and seeing those 70, I finally turned around to see those 17,500 people. They didn't come to see me. They came to be at a festival, an outdoor festival. And one Viking lad was there with a stein in his, uh, in his arm, uh, reeling. And there was just a moment between these efforts I did, this symphonic work, and the man shouted out, Troas de woman, vivant de woman. Never forget that. <laughs> so, but I went ahead and finally some guy said to me, hey man, do you want to put this on a record? So I did. I put, I put some new songs on a record. I'd like to play one of them for you now. This shows, and this is not going to get me any currency in today's record market. This is called Parting Hand. Parting Hand is a song of lamentation. 1884, somebody's dying. This song is sung. I start with this a cappella song. It is taboo to, to uh, accompany it. It is not to be accompanied. It's low church, and they consider an organ the devil's instrument. Uh, so I'd like you to hear how I choke the chicken on parting hand. 
Let's play that beautiful hymn that contemplates death. My Christian friends in bonds of love, whose hearts in sweetest union join. Your friendship's like a drawing band, yet we must take the part in hand. Your company sweet, your union dear, your words delightful to my ear. You draw like cords around my heart How sweet the hours have passed away Since we have met to sing and pray How low we are to leave the place Where Jesus shows his smiling face Oh, could I stay with friends so kind Cheer my drooping mind But duty makes me understand That we must take the part in hand
what you can do in a small room with a microphone in these days. You're home. I have questions. Yeah, yeah. So this was done when? It was done on a microphone in my bedroom. When? Oh, about uh, four or five years ago. So did you do all the vocals? No, no, no. I did the vocals with David P. Jackson and Doug Lacey. Okay. So they multi-tracked? Yeah, I know yeah. Adam come in, we all sang on a microphone uh -huh. in this small room, and the violins were done by, well, not name who was there playing these violins on this non-union day. Okay. But a person of my, of my celebrated now, first call. Without being too, in, you yeah. know, <clears throat> yeah. investigating too hard, yeah. did, were all the vocal parts written out, or were they worked out? Yes, or? they were written, everything was written out. Okay. Yeah. And and this was recorded, is this on a record? Is, is yes, this? this is on my new record. Ah, uh, now we'll get so, to this. <laughs> well, wait, I just got to say this. I, I threatened to say this. Uh, this was not planned, but it's new, purposeful. I have a new record. It's called Songs Cycled. It's a woman representing the good life, a woman in profile on a bicycle, a kind of a seductive uh, exterior uh, to the, the goods within. It comes out on the 24th of July. Songs, plural, cycled, past tense. Uh, imitative, in a way, derivative from my first record, which which bombed miserably, and that was called Song Cycle. This is called Song Cycled. There's an Aras record, an invitation. That's a beautiful thing. So we got product here. We got product. But, yeah, so I have, I have this record. As well, this year, I did something very naughty. I took a bunch of outtakes uh, and unheard, but that is due to horses' hooves or gunshots, or inane dialogue. I took the contents of a record album and put them all together and strung them in a, in a record called Super Chief. 800 copies were printed for record store day. It was given away. And this is music I've done for movies. In the back there, there's Van Dyke at the age of 12 with Grace Kelly. I came out to be in a picture in 1955. It took me three days to cross this country by train, a luxury train called the Super Chief. And I reordered these unheard and underappreciated musical efforts of my own. Uh, Van Dyke, I did that interrupt. as a record. Show them the copious, beautiful liner notes. You well, the beautiful done. liner notes. It's like that, real stuff. Let me read something from it. If you email me, I'll, I'll gladly share you this. Print if 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 you want a good beach read. I went to the school. I said, but yet the tuition was costly enough that my parents welcomed my opportunities to pick up some acting fees. It just fell into my lap. I started out in '52 with live TV starring Ezio Pinza, The Honeymooners, Craft Theater with Walter Matthau, Mr. Peepers with Wally Cox, Studio One with John Cassavetes, directed by Sidney Lumet. I mentioned Lava Wame at the Met. And I'm all, I mentioned that at the city. Holding up in the Algonquin, sipping cold Senegalese soup in the dining room within earshot of tables with Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, Fred Allen et al. in various stages of functioning alcoholism. <laughs> Party invitations volunteered at places like Gloria Ban Vanderbilt's digs. It sure wasn't hell in that boy choir school. And I'd act to pay my way through such a musical education. 
On one such live TV show, The Pharmacist, I had the leading role. Sitting next to me at a break in, at dress rehearsal was Lillian Gish, by now reduced to cameos. I'd been cautioned that Miss Gish and her sister had, ma had made, with the power of their charismatic personalities, a global film industry. Although the French had invented the medium, D.W. Griffith codified it in his silent films, and the Gish sisters were his Madonnas of that era. All was quiet on the set at NBC's Studio 8H at Rockefeller Square. I turned to the elderly, faded actress. Boldly, I would have been 11 in 54. Miss Gish, I've been told you and your sister made film and industry with your work in the silent era because everyone loved you all over the world. Grand pause. <laughs> That's very nice of you. So true, so very true. Very nice. I wasn't about to let the ball drop. I lobbed it back. Well, Miss Gish, when you heard that the talkies were coming, weren't you apprehensive? Grand pause. Well, that's a good question, young man. But you see, when we heard that movies would have sound, they didn't call them the talkies right away. All of us acting in them naturally assumed that all that sound would be just music. Those words of hers resonated and made an indelible impression on me throughout my adulthood. The train finally guided to a stop in Pasadena where all the quality folk detrained. Louis, Louis B. Mayer had made it policy that none of his stars would be caught dead getting off at LA's Union Station, Declasse. Pasadena was the call, so we got off there and with a chauffeur who would be my driver for the next eight weeks, Limey, from Liverpool. We glided into Hollywood to Suite 3D in the Chateau Marmont. That suite was directly across from Eartha Kitt, who was all Cosmo and black magic. Miss Kitt wore a silken peignoir and had a butterfly screen. She welcomed the frozen dinners I brought over. They were invented that year by Swanson. There were afternoons of languid lounges at limpid poolside with Tony Perkins on his days off from filming Psycho. Naughty Brandon DeWilda and I rolled homemade cigarettes out of the Marmont's laurel bush leaves. A year or two older than I, Brandon was unfazed by his celebrity as a child actor in Shane, modest to the core. Others I've met since haven't shown such ability. I'd sure arrived in 55 on the Super Chief. So this came out as a free record. Fantastic. Could we, could we play something from it? Yes, you can do whatever you hey, want. Hey, check it out. Wait just a second. Just, just to give you an idea. 64 minutes of music were thrust upon me by Jack Nicholson, my friend Jack Nicholson. It's true that he was amused by the smell of marijuana as well. But whatever it was that led me into that opportunity, I was damn sure that I would face it ably. I got one orchestrator to help me, one, to do 64 minutes of music in nine days. Think about it. You know what I'm talking about. Let's not be stupid here. My work was entirely vertical, I swear to you. I wrote myself forward and up and down that page. Still, I needed someone to make the tough decisions. Someone indefatigable, uncomplaining, underpaid. 
<laughs> and I got him in the figure of Lenny Niehaus. Now I want to play you. I want to play you, if you please. I know you're all of such enormous talent, and I'm so humbled to be among you. I just can't tell you. It's beyond words. But I would like to, in your indulgence, to see what was done within those uh, nine days. The standard of detail was such as you will hear now. This is uh, cut 11. I call it Super Chief 11. came up with um, a parallel theme for the girl, Jessica Lang, I think, was. but so that this thing winds up, but these things could be and were uh, uh, appeared uh, simultaneously. So I like to go to, um, so anyway, so let's know no, so if many were here, I would ask for a pause. Let's go to 12. So here's another treatment though of the dramatic section. 
the same piece of music. Keeping that minor ninth in my mind, there's just enough tension within the romantic compass of the is, uh, I, I have surrounded myself, and I hope I've given ample evidence of this, I have surrounded myself, as I am today, by people of superior ability. That has been my gift. My, my instrument is my ear. Uh, my standards uh, far exceed my abilities. But I have, in my hustle to make it through this unforgiving town, which is not a meritocracy, as we know, I have taken great refreshment in the people around me, and I want to end this show and tell at the turntable uh, with a fond remembrance to the late lamented Bob Thompson. His death was not premature, but his illness was. It was dementia. And Bob Thompson had attracted my ear the same way Esquivel had, and a lot of the other well, ear candy guys, the folks that, that brought me through hi-fi stereo and, and really made high fidelity something that resonated uh, in music. This is Bob Thompson doing a piece 
I called Canon in D. I did it to celebrate the death of a friend. It's not in D. It's not even a Canon. It's C-A-N-N-O-N, and it's in A-flat. This is Bob Thompson, and I want you to endure this number, please, although it is errol, it is of an era. It's certainly not hip enough for this room. But listen to the great regard and humor Bob Thompson as an arranger brought to the piece, and listen to the incredible virtuoso Roger Bobo doing the glissandi on the tuba at the final moments of the piece. This is Canon and D, arranged by Bob Thompson. By the, you want some crack? You're in the wrong place, man. Fifteen. Thank you kindly. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that. You. you know, I heard I actually I heard about the dum 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 everything like the merengue and bayonne and all of these forms where the push beat comes in. Uh, I, I produced this guy by the name of the Mighty Sparrow, and he told me that it was theorized that it is folklore in Trinidad that that beat 
derived from uh, the natives who observed Peter Stuyvesant when he was governor general of Curacao. This is before he went to uh, New Amsterdam, for those of you who want to fact check any of this. Uh, boom, boom. And he, had, he was walking on a wooden leg. And, and he told me that that's what they really believe. It's like saying, what does jazz mean? Well, we'll never know, but isn't that an amazing supposition? So that's it, that's the show. Thank you so much, Van Dyke. Been so generous and shared so much. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.